Good morning once again, and uh, it's good to be with you. Um, last time I had opportunity to be with you was this past July, and uh, if you were there, you remember that uh, we hung out with young David. Uh, David was just chosen by God to be the next king of Israel, and uh, that was the unfolding thing that was going to happen. I love David. David is a larger-than-life individual. Today, we would call him high-capacity. The tenderness of a shepherd, the fierceness of a warrior, the skill of a musician, the intellect of a poet. He was heroic and genuine, and he was flawed. The accounts that we have in Scripture of his journey from teenage shepherd to elderly king give us glimpses into his good days and his bad days. Our passage today highlights one of his good days, maybe even his best. David at his finest revolves around, or excuse me, revolves around his belief and behavior being aligned. David is probably best known for defeating Goliath. David's success that day was not based on his ability to use a sling. What we should remember of that day was not that he fought well, but that he believed well. When no other soldier, including King Saul, would take his stand against Goliath for his defiling of the God of Israel, David's faith said, there is no way I can lose. God will not be mocked. I will stand against his enemy. And this is what makes him heroic. Goliath going boom was merely a foregone conclusion. The giant falling makes for good drama and it's great for child Bible stories. But what we should be telling our kids is that David knew God and he loved God, and his love of God and his understanding of God led him into battle with Goliath. Similarly, our passage today, far less familiar than his battle with Goliath, David gets it right, and he does the just and honorable thing. And I'd like to read our passage today. If you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to go to 2 Samuel chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you or one on your phone or a tablet, I would, uh, there's probably a Bible located under the seat in front of you. I would encourage you to go there as, uh, as we go to our scripture for today. 2 Samuel chapter 9. And David said, Is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I'm your servant. And then the king said, is there not still anyone in the house of Saul that I may show kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in both feet. And the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Mekir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. And then King David sent for him and brought him to the house brought from the house of Mekir, son of Amel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And David asked him, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant 
that you should show regard for a dead, dead dog such as I. And then the king said to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belonged to Saul and all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall fill the land for him and shall bring in his, bring in his produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. And now Ziba after, had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord, the king commands his servants, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all that lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. And so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table, and he was lame in both feet. Now our passage now, David is king by God's choosing over all of Israel. And his transition to power was not quick, and it was not without struggle. While there was great tension between King Saul and David, there was also an extraordinary relationship, a friendship between King Saul's son, Jonathan, and David. Their relationship was so deep, deep to the point where Jonathan, well aware that David was God's choice to replace him as king, was in that he was God's choice, he, made, he asked David to make him a promise. Now, I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but in 1 Samuel chapter 20 is where this promise is born. And here's a small portion of it, starting at verse 14. Jonathan says, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of God that I may not die. And do not cut off uh, your steadfast love for my house forever. And when the Lord cuts off all everyone from the enemies of David from the face of the earth, and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Now with this promise in mind, David asks himself, verse one, is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? David made a promise. Now what this passage doesn't tell us, but what history bears out, is that this promise was made many years earlier. 10 or more, quite possibly. So you may say, big deal, he made a promise. Impressive that he still remembers it that many years later, but so what? I don't know about you, but I grieve the promises I haven't kept. Even those long since forgotten. Somewhere along the way, it seems we have cheapened the bond of our words of commitment. In my opinion, one area that suffered maybe the most from our promises not being followed through is in the area of prayer. If you say you will pray for something, do it. When someone asks you to pray for something and you agree to do so, you are making a promise to stand up underneath their burden and help support its weight. Sometimes it's a simple prayer in that moment. Sometimes. It's a long-term commitment. 
In his wonderful little book, Practical Prayer, Derek Prime says, there are times when God wants us to persist in praying for something so that we ensure ourselves of our own earnestness and keep ourselves available to become part of God's answer to our own prayers. I am thinking here of the conversion of close relatives and friends. If I am praying for the conversion of others, for those whom the Father has given to the Son as a fruit of Calvary, then I am right to continue my asking until I see God's answer. For in some mysterious way, my praying, together with all of the others, has a place in the unseen spiritual battle that goes on for men's souls. I seldom, if ever, in this life know the place my prayers may have. But I do know that when I pray, I have the privilege of opening the resources of heaven for those who I pray. When we promise to pray, let's pray. The other thing that we must understand about the question that King David asks is that this is not about being nice. This is not about being kind. Now, those in and of themselves are wonderful things, and I certainly encourage people to do that. But if that is our understanding, it would be extremely shallow. It would be a shallow understanding of what King David's intent is here. The word kindness translated in the ESV, which is the Bibles that are in front of you if you are following along. It is a nuanced word, frequently used in the Old Testament. In general, one may have the ident- the ident- identify three basic meanings of the word. Um, and they all interact with each other, strength, steadfastness, and love. Now, any understanding of this word falls, fails to suggest all three inevitably lose some of its richness. Love by itself becomes easily sentimentalized or universalized apart from uh, the covenant. Yet strength and steadfastness suggest only the fulfillment of a legal obligation. The word refers primarily to a mutual reciprocal rights and obligations between the parties of a relationship, especially Yahweh and Israel. If you remember in Exodus 34, uh, after Moses Uh, chisels out the second set of the Ten Commandments. He brings them before the Lord, and this is what the Lord said. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious one, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Abounding in love and faithfulness is the same word that is used here in this passage. It's the Hebrew word chesed. But chesed is not only a matter of obligation. It's also of generosity. It is not only a matter of loyalty but it's also a matter of mercy. Many of the English translations use different words. Some use love, some use grace, some use mercy, some use loving kindness, some use steadfast love. Um, I prefer to use um, loving kindness because I think it really explains this idea of loyal love that is rooted in generosity. And I believe that's what identifies the motive that undergirds grace and mercy. Grace and mercy are extended because of loving kindness. So to answer King David's question, a man named Ziba, who used to work for King Saul, was found and brought before the king. And here in verse 3, the question is asked again. 
emphasizing the kindness as the kindness of God. David was known, David has known the kindness of God. And in some earthly human way, he wants to extend this to anyone left in the house of Saul. In verses 3 and 4, he is told that Jonathan, who we consider David's best friend, still had a son, and he was crippled in both feet. Now, if you want to learn more about Jonathan's son, earlier on in this book, 2 Samuel, we heard that because of a battle taking place close to the house, one of the maids of King Saul grabbed Mephibosheth to get him out of the way and accidentally dropped him. And in dropping him, crippled him in both feet. In verses three and four, we're told that Jonathan's son, and he's apparently unable to care for himself so many years later, he lives in the household of somebody else. Makir, the son of Amael in a place of Lodabar. Now this is a good reminder to us that scripture wastes no words. I know it can be tedious working through what at times seems to be endless genealogies and location names. But even these, what we consider trivial, are God-breathed. I say this because the Hebrew word Lodabar means no place, no thing. Lo in Hebrew is a negator. And Debar means word or thing. So to summarize what Ziba has said, there is a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet, can't care for himself, and lives in a town called Nothing. Essentially, there can be no situation more polar opposite than King David's reality of this one. In verses 5 and 6, we learn David tends, or sends, John, sends Jonathan's, for Jonathan's son and we learn that his name is Mephibosheth. Everyone should be able to say the word Mephibosheth. I'm not going to ask you to spell it because I can't ask you to do something that I can't do myself. But you all should, what everyone should know of Mephibosheth. Right here is where I would like the video. I would love to see this encounter play out. How does Ziba talk to Mephibosheth? What was Mephibosheth's reaction to the king's request? See, only with sanctified imagination can one ponder what Jonathan's son Mephibosheth must have been thinking when he heard that the king wanted to see him. I think it's reasonable to assume that there was some significant amount of anxiety. Now, because we don't live in a monarchy and we don't necessarily think of the implications that arise when there is a change on the throne I'm not talking about passing on the reign to sons and daughters, but of complete regime change. If you've studied any British history at all, you know that when the balance of power shifted between the houses of Stuart, Tudor, and Saxony, it was never pretty. And the ruling family never let anyone from the previous family hang around to challenge their claim to the throne. See, this is not unique to British history. It's an age-old instinct of self-preservation. And it's no wonder that upon arrival, it is with complete humility that Mephibosheth falls on his face. Now, some have suggested that Mephibosheth was a threat to King David's kingship and that this was one of those keep your friends close and your enemies closer kind of things. I just don't see it in the text. 
If this were that case, the writer would not have used the word chesed. Now up to this point, we know that King David has a desire to show kindness or the kindness of God to Mephibosheth for the sake of his father. But we don't know what it's going to look like. Is he going to give him an allowance? The best medical care in the land? No. King David's idea of loving kindness is restoration. The king restores him to a place of honor. He returns to him the land that belonged to his grandfather, King Saul. And quite possibly, believing that the adage of good management is better than good intentions, he assigns Ziba, his sons, and all of his servants to work the land and to care for Mephibosheth. And the piece de resistance, from now on, you are going to eat at my table like one of my sons. This is so much more than a rags-to-riches story. This is one of the greatest examples of unmerited favor in the Old Testament. And it is one in a vast line of examples throughout all of Scripture of favor for the unlikely and the insignificant. God uses the sons of barren women to lead and protect his chosen people. Jesus touched the unclean and he visited with the riffraff of his day. This is not only a case on this is not only the case on a human level, whether in the Bible or in the 21st century, but David here gets it right. And there are so many parallels between David and Jesus. And in theology, David is considered a type of Christ. In this event, David's actions foreshadow the loving kindness that has been extended to the world through the gracious work of Christ. David extended grace to Mephibosheth as Christ has extended grace to us. Mephibosheth did not deserve it, and neither do we. Mephibosheth did nothing to put himself on the king's radar. In fact, I think an argument could be made that he did whatever he could to avoid it. Grace is one-sided. It costs the giver, not the recipient. Now, some of you may remember well the day that the king sent for you and that you responded in humility. And I'm willing to bet that there might be someone here who believes the king wants nothing to do with them that you live in a state of nothingness, crippled because of where you have been and what you have done. And I'm here to tell you you're wrong. I'm here to say that not only are you worthy of rescue, but that right now, Jesus is asking for you. You may identify with Mephibosheth in this story in ways that I will never understand But the good news is no matter what you have done or what's been done to you, there is room at the cross for you. How sad it would be this morning if your mind and your heart were pricked and you left without saying something to anybody. Left without seeking out clarity for that wrestling in your mind and your spirit. If you've come with someone, share with them that unsettled churning within you 
And if you've come by yourself, come find me. There's a story told about Fiorello LaGuardia, an Irishman, I'm guessing, who when was mayor of New York City during the worst days of the Great Depression in all of World War II, one bitterly cold night in January 1935, the mayor turned up at night, uh, turned up at night court and ser- that served the poorest ward of the city. LaGuardia dismissed the judge for the evening and took over the bench himself. And within a few minutes, a tattered old woman was brought before him, charged with stealing a loaf of bread. She told LaGuardia that her daughter's husband had deserted her and her daughter was sick and her two grandchildren were starving. But the shopkeeper, from whom the bread was stolen, refused to drop the charges. It's a really bad neighborhood, Your Honor, the, mayor, uh, the man had told the mayor. She's got to be punished to teach people around here a lesson. LaGuardia sighed. He turned to the women and said, you've got to be punished. The law makes no exceptions. Ten dollars? or 10 days in jail. But even as he pronounced the sentence, the mayor was already reaching into his pocket. He extracted a bill and tossed it into his famous sombrero, saying, here's the $10 fine that I now remit. And furthermore, I'm going to fine everyone in this courtroom 50 cents for living in a town where a person has to seal bread so their grandchildren can eat. Mr. Bailiff? collect the fines, and give them to the defendant. So the following day, the New York City newspapers reported that $47.50 was turned over to a bewildered old lady who had stolen a loaf of bread to feed her starving grandchildren. By law, she deserved a $10 fine or 10 days in jail. And what did she receive? A $47.50 paycheck. She received which she did not deserve. Now, I'd mentioned earlier that the loving kindness David lavished on Mephibosheth took the form of restoration. The loving kindness of Christ on the cross provides the very same thing. Restoration. Restoration is at the heart of the grace offered by Christ a restored and reconciled relationship with the Father. David's message to Mephibosheth is not get your feet fixed and then there's a spot for you at my table. No, the message is welcomed as is, restored to a place of honor. And that's exactly the pattern of Christ. Welcomed as is, restored to a right relationship with the Creator. There are many individuals in Scripture who I would love to have a conversation with. And one of them would be the thief on the cross. Now, Alistair Begg just recently did a routine on this that I thought was just incredibly insightful. He says he wants to meet the thief on the cross because he wants to know how this whole thing worked out for him. He didn't know anything about church membership, anything about baptism, nothing about discipleship, Never been to church before. So when he gets to heaven, what is he going to say? He gets to heaven and the angel said, can I help you? And the thief on the cross says, I don't know. 
And the angel says, well, then what are you doing here? And the thief on the cross says, I don't have any clue. What do you mean you don't have any clue? I, I, I don't know what I'm doing here. All right, well, let me ask you a few questions. Can you give me the, the, the proper understanding of justification by faith? I have no idea what you're talking about. All right, let's talk about the scriptures. Let's talk about the, the scriptures being perfect and being unfathomable. I have no idea what you're saying. And in frustration, the angel's going to say, well, then, then what are you doing here? Why on earth are you here? On what grounds should we let you in? To which the thief on the cross says, the guy on the middle cross said I could come. Friends, the guy on the middle cross says you can come. Unbeliever, won't you come? Fellow believer, won't you give thanks again for the grace that has been extended to you? In her lovely hymn, Rescue the Perishing, Fanny Crosby speaks to us all. To the unbeliever, she writes, though you are slighting him, still he is waiting waiting a penitent child to receive. I plead with you earnestly, I plead with you gently. He will forgive if you only believe. And to the follower, she says, rescue the perishing, duty demands it. Strength for thy labor, the Lord will provide. Back to the narrow way, patiently win them. Tell the poor wanderer, the Savior has died. The reason I love the story of Mephibosheth so much is it is such a clear example of unmerited favor being given to somebody. And the reality is I myself have received unmerited favor. Why Christ chose me, I don't know. But I do know this. He went to the cross so that I wouldn't have to. He paid a debt that I couldn't pay. Eternity is at stake, my friends. And as I've said earlier, if you have come with somebody and there's a churning within your spirit as you have heard about this grace that has been extended to you, please let them know. And if for some reason you are here by yourself, not so sure how you even came into the door this morning, and there is a wrestling and a churning inside of you, an unsettledness in your mind and in your spirit, and you've got nobody to share it with, you come find me. Because eternity is at stake. Loved ones, this message changes everything. The loving kindness of God changes everything everything. It changed it for Mephibosheth and it changed it for me. You know, so often in, the, in this independent society that we live in, we're looking to boost our resume. 
But the reality is there's nothing on your resume that makes you attractive to Christ. There's nothing on your resume that gets you into the gate. We are just, we're being told and told that we have to respond to these questions. Yet I did this, I believed this, I built this, I, I, I. Listen, if your answer to the question is when the angel asks you, what should I do? If it isn't, start with he. Because of what Jesus did for me, then you got it wrong. We need to remove I and embrace he because there's nothing on your resume and there's nothing on my resume that gets us into the heaven. It is only of the work that Christ has done for you and for me. Unbeliever, won't you come? Follower of Christ, won't you say thank you time and time again for he has reached out to you and he radically changed your life as well. Father, thank you. Thank you that the message is welcomed as is. Thank you that I don't have to clean myself up. Thank you for changing my life. Thank you for changing so many of the lives of those gathered here. Help us to rely on you and you alone for our place and our identity. We love you and we thank you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.